I'm Jeannie Phillips and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We are here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today I'm with Kathleen Rinegar and we'll be talking about equity and cultural responsiveness in the middle grades, edited by Kathleen, Lisa Harrison, and Ellis Hurd. Thank you so much for joining me, Kathleen. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Jeannie. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So I'm an associate professor of education at Northern Vermont University. I coordinate our middle and secondary teacher education programs. I also serve as the co-editor of Middle School Journal, along with my co-editors of this book, uh, Lisa Harrison and Ellis Hurd. I serve as the program chair for the middle level um, special interest group of the American Educational Research Association. Um, but I'm also a mother, a partner, an avid reader, and a runner. I am so excited to have you on for the second time. We got to be in person the last time we recorded and we talked about Cornelius Miners, we got this. It's one of my favorite episodes. And um, so I'm really excited to have your experience uh, um, showcased on the podcast again this time. Thank you so much for agreeing to come and talk to me about this book, which I love um, and uh, which I think is really important right now. But before we begin that, you're an avid reader. What are you reading right now? Yeah, so I tend to always have two books going at once, a young adult novel and you know a grown-up, quote unquote, grown-up book, because I think young adult is for grown-ups as well. But um, in terms of young adult, I just, just finished uh, Chlorine Sky by Mahogany Brown, which was just beautiful, such a gorgeous debut. Um, novel by such a um, talented poet. I love her middle grades um, uh, picture book of poetry called Woke as well. Highly, highly recommend that one. And then I'm also reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, um, which I find beautiful, but in an entirely different way. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love Wilkerson's writing, The Warmth of Other Suns, was such an education for me. And I'm definitely going to have to add Chlorine's Guy to my to my to be read pile. Thank you for that recommendation. Yeah. I love talking with you about books, but we're going to get to this book. And I, I just want to, could you give us a little background on this book? Um, why this book? And why did you organize it the way you did? Talk a little bit about how it's organized for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So this book came about through um, my through through a desire, a long standing desire to create a book in sort of the mainstream middle grades for a mainstream middle grade audience that centers equity and cultural responsiveness, um, because it's something that I and my co co editors felt like had, has been a huge gap since the beginning of the middle grades movement. Um, and so actually it, it was, uh, I knew I wanted this book to be born, but I also knew as a white woman that I could not birth this book on my own, right? It, it was not my book to put out into the universe. So I had been familiar with the work of Lisa Harrison and Ellis Hurd in middle grades communities. And so I reached out to them and said, I feel like your work, your experiences, your identities would be really important to, you know, help bring this work to life. And so we um, 
we did. And it has become the start of a really important and powerful friendship and collaboration for me. Um, the book itself is meant to be a call to action. So really it's about, it's about five calls to action. The first is the need to equitize, equitize the middle grades framework. And by that, we mean to demonstrate the ways that critical equity focused frameworks and pedagogies intersect with and actually improve traditional middle grades frameworks. Um, and some of those, those uh, equity-based frameworks include cultural responsiveness, culturally sustaining pedagogies, reality pedagogy, equity literacy, funds of knowledge, right? And these, these frameworks are all created by scholars of color and have existed for um, many, 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 many years, but they have largely not been part of mainstream middle grades conversations. And so that was a really important part of this work. The second was to um, help redefine young adolescents in culturally sustaining ways, right? So through the, through the important act of identifying young adolescents as a unique developmental period, what ended up kind of happening over time is this essentializing of the young adolescent. Right? And anytime any person becomes essentialized and we start to define what's normal, then we also start to define what's abnormal, right? And that automatically puts some kids at the margins. And the groups that tend to be at the margins, right, in middle grades work, as in pretty much any educational work that, that essentializes, are the same groups that are systemically on the margins in society at large, right? So BIPOC youth, youth who identify as LGBTQ+. So that was the second purpose. The third was to counteract bias by celebrating counter narratives, right? This notion that, um, actually I'm gonna give an example of that. So one of the things that I um, view as whitewashing in middle grades work is the notion of student voice, right? So student voice is at the center of all middle grades work and it always has been. And that's actually, it's a component that has drawn me into the field of middle grades education because student voice, I think is such an important piece. But the way I feel like we tend to talk about it, myself included in middle grades work is that we talk about it in terms of empowerment but not in terms of liberation. Right, and there's a difference there. And so to me, this notion of bringing counter narratives into middle grades, it's not just about letting students pick how they wanna present their learning, but it's really about providing a space for them to define and write their own stories. In essence, to control the narrative about who they are, right? And to me, that is way more powerful than just this traditional notion of student voice. And then the fourth is to re-examine the middle grades concept, right? So in my 20 plus years in middle grades education, I've lived by this notion of a middle grades concept, right? The series of practices that if used with fidelity is supposed to create the ideal experience for young adolescents, right? Things like advisory, teaming, those types of practices. Um, but again, this model is largely based on the experiences of white middle-class youth. 
And so the question that this book poses, or one of the questions, is what does a middle grades model look like that considers identity and even more specifically intersectionality, right? Is that model still the same when we really think about the intersectionality of the identities of middle grades learners? And then lastly, it's about preparing teachers who, um, I guess is the way I frame it, know no other way than to teach but in an equitable one. Right? How do we transform teacher education so that we're, we're moving from um, reteaching to just being able to like, this is it, this is how, you know, this is how we do it. And recognizing that's always evolving, right? There isn't a list of magic things on how to do it. But what are the mindsets? What are the frames of minds that, that um, developing teachers right, need to carry with them in order to be equitable in their teaching. So each chapter in the book sort of it takes up one or more of those ideas, right, and, and sort of looks at um, middle grades work. It's divided into four sections, one focused on the failures of developmentalism, one on promising practices for supporting young adolescents with marginalized identities. Um, there's a section on um, uh, pre-service teachers and supporting them. So yeah, so I'm excited to dive into it with you. Oh my goodness. I feel like we could spend this whole podcast just talking about what you just said. And I'm going to try not to do that because it's so, you said so many profound and wonderful things. And I want to start with just noticing, I've been really frustrated that we keep talking about equity, but we're not doing. And so I'm really grateful for this book that gives us a path forward in that, in, in making equity a verb, in, in making it actionable in schools. Uh, so I'm really super grateful for that. Because um, talk is important, but it, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's not the thing that gets the job done. Um, and then I just I just love how you use this concept that comes out of critical race theory of, of counter storytelling and you, and you sort of use it to reshape um, the notion of youth voice as, as students controlling the narrative. I was strongly re reminded of uh, Jamila Liscott and her, um, her, her, I think it's a TED talk on how if we think we're giving students voice we're fooling ourselves. They already have a voice. Yes. It's not our job to give it to them. And that I hear echoes of that when you talk about um, allowing young people to control their narratives. For sure, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, it's taken me as someone so steeped in traditional middle grades work to, to really recognize that and critically unpack these ideas that have so been a part of my pedagogy and my thinking for so long, right? And, and really that shift from student voice as empowerment to liberation really is what has made the difference for me, right? It's, it's, it's creating space for youth to do what they already do, right? Yeah, and then, and then there's this final thought I had while you were talking about how you've organized the book and it's, this question of, and I, I have an answer, but I'm still gonna pose it as a question. Can you be a good teacher without being a teacher who practices equitable teaching? Can you be a good teacher without focusing on equity? I personally would say no, 
Um, yeah. And so this isn't optional because I think one of the things that that is that holds us back, uh, I will say in, in Vermont settings, but I'm sure beyond Vermont as well, is pacing for privilege and saying, well, these teachers aren't ready yet to talk about race. But then are they ready to teach would be my question. I think that's such an important question. And, and one that I think is at, at the center of what us as teacher educators should be, should be grappling with and thinking about um, in terms of how does that look like then so that equity work isn't an add-on in teacher education, right? So it's not framed as this, we learn how to be teachers and then we learn how to be equitable teachers. Right, but so we just learn how to be equitable teachers. That's that's it. That's what it Art is. Parcel. Yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Otherwise, quite frankly, we're centering ourselves and we're teaching for ourselves, and we're not teaching for for youth. Oh, you are just giving me chills right now. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. I I just yes, it's not extra. And, and in fact, when we, if we learn to teach and then learn equity, we have to unlearn much of what we learned about teaching in the first place. And so why not do it right the first time? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, let's get in. We're gonna really focus in on a couple chapters because really, honestly, we could talk about this book for days if we didn't focus in. And so I'm gonna start with chapter one, which is the introduction that you wrote um, with Lisa and Ellis, and um, and it, it's the section on developmentalism, and it really begins as a critique of developmentalism, which was really helpful for me, actually, <laughs> to read. Um, and so you talk specifically about um, uh, G. Stanley Hall, and you told the story, a, a little story about him and his perspective and point of view as he did the research that led to him being called the father of adolescence. And um, so I, I guess I just wanted you to unpack that a little bit for the listeners and the implications of his positionality and the way he positioned his work and how it influences the middle level movement. Absolutely. And I want to start by giving, um, giving credit to Lisa Harrison for this, right? So while this chapter was definitely um, co-created by Lisa Ellis and I, it really centers in the work that Lisa has done for a long time as a scholar. So G. Stanley Hall is often considered uh, the father, grandfather, however you want to frame it, um, of adolescence. So um, in the early 1900s, he sort of popularized the notion of recapitulation theory, which is based in Darwin's work. And it's the idea that humans go through evolutionary stages, right? And that has sort of formed the backbone of the de developmentalism that we continue to use today, right? We uh, begin at birth and we move through various, various stages to reach adulthood. And the way that um, Hall defines adolescence is it's the stage whereby humans move from their savage state to their civilized state, right? That notion of sort of becoming fully human, right? You're not quite human yet. You become fully human when, when you, as you pass through adolescence. So 
that notion has continued with us today, right? We, we think of adolescence as this period of exploration, this period of time where you sort of become who, you're, who you will be, right? Um, and some of the issues with the way that um, G. Stanley Hall presented it is A, he believed that white boys could move through to civility faster, right? He also believed that non-white races were incapable of moving out of the savage adolescent state, right? So that really only white boys could be like truly human on this like appropriate developmental cycle. White females may get there, right? But it will take some time and, and some effort. And um, if you are not white, you will always remain in this savage state. So what it does is it creates uh, educational movements like the middle grades movement that are founded on these notions of developmentalism, right? It centers the patriarchy and racist ideals in the very fabric of the foundation of the movement. And it doesn't center issues of power, privilege, and equity, and therefore, in a lot of ways, maintains the status quo. I'm just really mad right now. <laughs> like, I'm just really ticked off that white supremacy is so at the heart of this. And it, it makes me think I had a conversation about PBIS um, recently. Uh, um, and when you said earlier about defining what's normal and abnormal behavior, this rests normal firmly in white maleness in such a way that means we really have to do a lot of excavating in order to figure out where subtle biases show up. Absolutely. And I think for me, the anger is so, was so, is so real for me too, because I, it's just, I have spent right over 20 years as a middle grades educator sort of touting this developmentalist and i never i never learned this right and it's such an example of the way that um this shows up right in our in our curriculum even for for teacher educators right that it it has taken folks of color to wake me up as a white woman to say no the foundation of your very the center, right, of the pedagogy that you have always practiced is has always been racist, right? right? Right, and so one of the antidotes that's even in the title of this book is to um, to add culture into the mix, and so you you and your um, co-editors uh, and co-writers of this chapter argue that. Um, any look at developmental responsiveness must include cultural responsiveness. And so I wonder if you could just explain what that might look like to the listeners. Absolutely. So while there have been some, some educational scholars who call for um, a dismantling of developmentalism, uh, Lisa Ellis and I are looking to a convergence of developmentalism and, and cultural responsiveness um, and by cultural responsiveness, I want to add, we're including sustaining and revitalizing pedagogies as well when we use that term. Um, but a convergence of the two 
so that we can acknowledge that there is a shared experience, right, around puberty and identity development and, and adolescence, while also promoting, right, and, and that the also is really important here, um, and understanding that there are unique experiences for every single young adolescent, right, and those experiences come out of, come out of our, our culture and our background. What I'm hearing you say is intersectionality. Absolutely, for sure. Yep. Yeah, and some examples. I'm happy to share some examples of, of what that looks like. So um, take physical development, right? We tend to think of physical development um, as sort of there's sort of atypical ways our bodies develop and, and there's typical ways that our bodies develop and there's a typical timeline and an atypical timeline um, around that development. So I have two examples of the way that um, culture plays a part in defining what's atypical. So one is around notions of standard beauty, right? So in mainstream literature, middle grades literature, we do discuss issues around um, appearance for, for young adolescent girls, right? Things around um, eating disorders and... Um, notions like that, but rarely do we discuss the added implications of Eurocentric standards of beauty on our BIPOC young adolescents, right? And this includes and is often the cause of policing policies around hairstyles, right? Such as dreadlocks and braids. Um, it leads to dangerous things around skin whitening. It leads to detrimental feelings about um, mental health um, issues around the way that you look. And that goes beyond, right, what we typically talk about. Another example would be um, heteronormativity as the centerpiece of the way we talk about sexual and gender identity. Um, particularly as young adolescents are, um, we talk about health education for young adolescents right? Because that is centered in heteronormative perspectives, what discuss, what's discussed in schools when it comes to sexual education normalizes both a gender binary and heterosexuality and doesn't leave space for um, any other way of being, which is dangerous to youth who don't identify, right? It, within a, the traditional gender binary, binary or as heterosexual, because they're forced to do their own learning outside of, of, um, of spaces created for that to happen. I really appreciate those concrete examples. And I'm also interested in, you've touched on it um, a bit, but the both and that I see in your book, and I, I heard you when you said um, both cultural responsiveness and sustaining pedagogies, which is this building on the cultural knowledge that students already hold and having an asset-based lens on that and critiquing what is oppressive about cultures. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, the both and of that. Yeah, I, I believe we have to do both, right? And, and the reason being is because breaking down the stereotypes of what an essentialized young adolescent is or who essentialized young adolescents are is absolutely critical, right? For all the reasons I just explained. And 
it's only one component of centering equity in our middle schools, right? If we don't use the expanded knowledge of who our learners are to actually identify and dismantle the systems and practices that oppress them, then we've just fallen into the kindness trap, right? We're just being kinder to our students. It's, it's sort of how you framed the beginning of this podcast, right? It's about talking the talk, being kinder to our students, but not actually acting or changing things in a way that, um, that actually makes their experience better. And then along those same lines, if we try to identify and dismantle oppressive systems without also acknowledging the cultures, identities, and experiences of our learners, then we fall into the trap of white saviorism, right? Then we start identifying what we, we, and I'm using the royal we as myself as a, as a white individual, then we fall into the trap of being able to say, I know what's best for students of color. I know what's best for students who are gender non-conforming. And we can't, right, without really actually having conversations and understanding their experiences. It reminds me of when I saw Paul Gorski years ago speak, and he said, you know, you can't be a teacher interested in equitable teaching and not support living wage, right? And it occurs to me, you can't be a teacher who wants all students to thrive and not stand up against racism, not stand up against systemic oppression and help your students to do so also. Uh, uh, two teachers um, from Orleans, uh, Kyle um, Chadburn and Andrea Groton have been doing some work um, last year, I believe, with students where they talked about poverty and, and some of the things they talked about in their community, which is um, like has a high poverty rate, is if you find yourself in this situation, one, it's not your fault. There are systems at play that are creating this. Two, it, it doesn't have to be forever. And three, there's no shame to it. It's the system that's broken, not you. And I, I think that's an example of being able to sort of see students' cultural knowledge, build on it, and also name the oppressive systems that are at work. For sure, because a huge, you know, I think a huge part of um, equity in education, and especially at the middle grades level, it's a critical component of it, is not only taking action yourself, but helping students to understand how they can also take action, right? That they are not just passive, right? Passive uh, people in these systems of oppression, but identify the ways that they and their families and their communities have been systemically oppressed and then take those next steps. And really, I, I guess the thing that I want to tease out a little bit further is that um, uh, that this is no more political than doing nothing. That by not naming systems of oppression, um, we are standing with the, with the status quo by naming them and asking students to critique them. That is every bit. Uh, as political as doing nothing. Complacency is one of the, the worst places to be, I think, as an educator, 
we can't be we can't be complacent otherwise we are complicit right they go hand in hand oh you said that so much better than i did i love that thank you kathleen this is the perfect setup for us to move on to chapter nine which i loved this chapter um and i really want you to talk about it so people can get a little background and so um so it's about designing culturally responsive curriculum around the Standing Rock movement. Could you just frame it a little bit for our listeners to begin? Yeah, this is a favorite chapter of mine. And I think one of the reasons it's my favorite is every time I read it, I learn something new. There's just so much to unpack in, in this handful of pages. So this is a favorite chapter of mine as well. Um, every time I read it, I, I learn something new uh, in terms of what it really looks like to create curriculum that is culturally responsive and steeped in uh, the cultures of students. So in essence, this is the story of how two teacher educators collaborated with teachers at an ME school to develop a curriculum for students around the Dakota pipeline. So their intention was to explore what it might look like to develop curriculum that is truly culturally responsive. So in essence, what the authors do is they partner with ME teachers and elders to member check their curriculum and to center not only the content of their curriculum, but the instructional practices used to teach um, that stem from m and &E culture. So what they develop is a critical literacy uh, focus on media coverage of the Dakota Pipeline protests. And they merge traditional storytelling with social media. And what unfolds in this chapter is their, through their experiences with the m and &E teachers and elders, they realize how little they know as, um, as curriculum developers and as educators themselves. So it's this really multi-layered, powerful story. We've recently had um, Judy Dow and Marie Vey do some uh, webinars around um, uh, decolonizing um, place-based learning. And the language that I love that they're using is unsettling because of the unsettling the settler narr narratives. And, um, and I'm hearing a little bit about that and unsettling, not just the what they teach, but the how they teach it, how they engage it. And I just, oh, so good. Um, it just gets me thinking in all sorts of interesting ways. I'm so inspired by this chapter. And so the authors really begin by acknowledging their own identities and positionalities. And I, I love this on page 80, 184, they say, to understand the values of the community with whom we work, we need to acknowledge first how our inherent values inform how we listen, ask questions, and draw conclusions. And um, they go on to discuss how they have to acknowledge their white privilege as they do this work. And you sort of already started talking about how profound that experience is for them. Can you um, imagine what this might look like in a, in, in a Vermont middle school? Yeah. So I want to start by saying that I would argue that without this acknowledgement of our own identities and positionalities as educators, 
um, you can't do equity work, right? You are not doing equity work unless it starts here. Um, and again, I think of kindness movements, colorblindness, and white saviorism, right? All of these notions arguably stem from good intentions, but because of their refusal to acknowledge power and difference, they end up causing more harm, right? Than, than they actually um, often, um, yeah, they cause more harm. So I think all of these are examples of what happens in our schools if we as educators take ourselves out of the equation, right? In each of these um, examples, when you think of ki kindness, an overemphasis on kindness, right? This idea of colorblindness and any of these, what we're actually doing is centering ourselves and decentering systemic inequities and the role each of us plays in perpetuating them. So it goes back to that idea of complacency, right? Just to draw for people who've been listening when we talked about stamped or or when we think about Ibram, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi's work, I think what you're talking about is the difference between assimilationist where that being kind and colorblind is like, it's okay, you can be like us too. And anti-racist, which is like, oh, how are the ways that I'm showing up limiting or demanding assimilation from my students? Yeah, thanks for drawing that really important connection, uh, Jeannie. Both because I think it, it sort of highlights the way that um, even me as a white person talking about this work now, right, is centered in the work of Ibram Kendi and all of these um, amazing BIPOC scholars that without them, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't be having these conversations, right? And, and talking about these ideas. So remembering to center them in this work is, is also, right, a really important part of, of what needs to happen needs to happen. So in Vermont schools, right, what does what does this look like? And I think the piece that I want to um, highlight here is, as my work with a lot of Vermont schools sort of in as a consultant working with Vermont educators around issues around this, the the question always comes up around um, if we need to make sure that we're um, decentering ourselves by actually identifying right what our positionality our power thinking about our identities and that's ongoing work right that's works that happens forever what i find out find what happens is a lot of teachers it paralyzes them it's like i how do i do this ongoing work and feel comfortable right teaching in ways that are culturally responsive, equitable, when I don't even fully understand my role and positionality in all of this. And I think this chapter sort of highlights how these two teacher educator scholars were able to do both at the same time, right? It's kind of an iterative process, right? Like yes. we have to assume that we're, that we as educators are never done learning. And that um, a lot of our learning isn't necessarily about our content area, but about ourselves and how we show up for and with students. For sure. And that means we're going to make mistakes in the work. And I think when, you know, Becky, what Becky and Amy talk about in this chapter is they'll talk about things that they, um, misconceptions 
that they had, right? I, you know, Becky would say, I thought this, I presented this to, um, you know, one of the elders that I was talking with. And they made, through that, I reframed my thinking, right? And so their whole curriculum process was iterative. And I think that also comes into play, again, going back to teacher education, as how we need to teach future teachers to develop curriculum, that it is iterative, right? That curriculum isn't ever stagnant. It occurs to me that it also requires um, dispositions that are really hard to have as a professional. And those are humility and vulnerability. And I think there, you know, I think in my past, I have thought that when I arrive as a professional, I will no longer need, I, I will be, be invulnerable. But what I've actually learned is my best growth comes from humility and vulnerability. Yeah, I, to I totally agree in every single way. I think the more that I acknowledge that I don't know, the more open I become to being a better educator, right? Um, yeah. I appreciate that, thank you. Um, I appreciate how this makes my uh, vulnerability an asset too. <laughs> um, so one of the things I loved about this chapter, one of the many things is that the educators call themselves co-investigators. And I really appreciated that um, sort of co-construction or collaborative perspective on the work. And one of my frustrations in Vermont is that, um, and really I thank many people, chief among them, Judy Dow, for really helping me develop this understanding, is that we don't really, most kids graduate from Vermont schools without ever learning about eugenics. And um, so I have a lot of curiosity around that. One is I often think of schools who say they're uh, predominantly white and wonder, are they? Uh, we know that eugenics um, in Vermont forced a lot of native people to assimilate. And I wonder how much, how many of our students have lost their heritage because of our legacy of eugenics. Um, and then I also wonder what would it look like to co-investigate eugenics with Vermont middle school students? And what kind of coming back to this idea of um, not just that culturally responsive pedagogies has you take students' cultures into account, but also helps them transform the world by, by um, understanding, critiquing, and advocating against oppressive systems. What would happen in Vermont if we, if suddenly our students understood the eugenics movement and its impact on our state? Yeah, so I love that this idea of um, co-investigating right, as educator um, really speaks to a type of pedagogy, right, that decentralizes teacher power, right, which is to me is such an important notion in equity work. And it also reminds us, as, as you've just said, that we can teach things that we don't know, right, which just to me opens up the possibility of what we can do with students in such important ways, right? It goes back to that idea of so many of us feel paralyzed 
right? Particularly those of us who grew up in, in um, with dominant identities, right? We feel paralyzed as we realize how much we don't know. And so this notion of co-investigating allows us to situate ourselves as co-investigators and acknowledge both that our personal knowledge is incomplete, right? And acknowledge that publicly to our students and the communities in which we exist, right? And that there are multiple ways to grow that knowledge with and for learners um, within our larger community, right? Our community becomes teacher. So for me, this really connects um, with this idea of providing personally meaningful and relevant learning opportunities. I think that can feel really overwhelming and that idea of, um, um, it can feel like every kid's gonna be studying their own thing, which I don't think has to be true necessarily, but like it also can feel like, well, how am I supposed to know all the things so I can teach them? And I think, think focusing on teaching skills and ways of investigating as opposed to content is a really powerful lever for help, helping kids make uh, meaningful connections to their learning and to, and to have them drive the train or what was the, the language we used earlier, um, narrate their own stories, right? To, to um, um, feel empowered. Absolutely. And I think part of that too is it also helps us as educators, I think, move from a deficit to an asset-based look at our communities, right? It's that acknowledgement that um, our students and our communities are assets and should be parts of our curriculum. And, and they, they shouldn't actually be parts of our curriculum. They should embody, our, our curriculum should embody their assets, right? The assets of our communities. And sometimes, those assets are, you know, acknowledging those assets is what really helps us um, dismantle the oppressive systems, right? It, to me, that's that step from white saviorism, right? That it's my job to teach students how to identify um, what's oppressive and instead say, our students and, the, and members of our community already know what oppresses them. Right, they already know, and so you're you're opening them up to be the experts, right? So that they can define then how things need to be dismantled. I guess part of our job as educators, and to use what the authors call critically conscious educators, is to get out of our our students' way, and and part of that is to like dismantle the notion of what we should be teaching. Well, they're, by the time they're in high school, they should know about X, Y, or Z, the Civil War, the colonies, whatever it is, right? That we have this notion that they have to know. And how do we get out of the way of, of ourselves and them by being co critically conscious of the um, limitations of a, a, a canon that is set down, that is steeped in white supremacy and patriarchy? Yeah, I love that um, that Becky and Amy uh, base their their work on the work of Paulo Freire, right, and his work around critical consciousness. And I'm actually going to read a quote from the chapter because for me, they define critic what a, a critically conscious educator is in a way 
that really speaks to me in terms of our work with middle school students specifically. So they say, the critically conscious educator must honor the dynamic ways in which young adolescents learn and culturally relevant classrooms must position youth as intellectuals capable of thinking about how to reconcile social injustices. So that A takes me back to the work of uh, Kyle and Andrea, right, from that you talked about earlier. And I also love this example that Becky and Amy use to highlight how they became critically conscious through this work um, in conceptualizing this curriculum on the Dakota pipeline. So I love that they were really open about their fears that incorporating modern technologies how that might undermine critical cultural, uh, traditional cultural practices, right? So they came into developing this curriculum with this notion, right, of what storytelling was. And that storytelling um, was devoid of technology, right? And then in sharing this idea with uh, and the elders, the elders pushed back. And they gave tons of examples of how technology has served to preserve their culture, right? And how youth should be at the center of that preservation work through the use of technology. And that was such a powerful, like critically conscious awakening moment um, for them that they had these misconceptions, right? About storytelling and, um, the indigenous culture that it was that it was uh, not um, uh, coherent with the modern world, right? That it it was separate. That it's stuck in amber, mm -hmm. right? And this idea that ancestral wisdom is also evolving, right? Like it's right. also like growing and changing and and modern, right? Um, yes, I love that. I um. So first off, can you give me the page number for that quote you gave? Yes, that is on, that's on 192. Great, thank you. When I was rereading this chapter, I could not stop thinking about the latest Caldecott winner, We Are the Water Protectors, which is about the Standing Rock movement. And um, it's such a beautiful picture book. And um, throughout it is this refrain that appears again and again. We stand with our songs and our drums. We are still here. And it's just reminding me how, uh, how common this idea that um, Native people live in some past um, is and what a strongly held uh, bias that is. We stand with our songs and our drums. We are still here. Um, so I just wanted to bring that forward. Um, I feel like I could talk about this chapter forever. Uh, I love how you helped me think more deeply about becoming a critically conscious educator. And I think that has resonance with the next chapter we're gonna talk about, chapter 14, which I also just, I mean, I love this whole book, but this chapter feels like it should be required reading. It's about um, pre-service teachers, uh, but I kept thinking, wait, why aren't we using this with in-service teachers? <laughs> like what's, where's the disconnect? Um, and so uh, 
I would, I want to read this as a, an educator who's been practicing for a long time. I needed this. And so I was really struck on page 312 with this quote, classroom management challenges often communicate that educators are not meeting students' relational, pedagogical, or behavioral needs. Young adolescents need to have personal connections with adults who care for them. To learn in classrooms that challenge them to think critically about the world around them and to know their teachers will treat them equitably and with respect. And the authors continue in this, um, the beginning of this chapter to talk about how marginalized students need culturally responsive approaches that affirm a sense of belonging for them. And it really made me think about um, knowing students well and how this asks us to reframe that um, or to go deeper than developmentalism does. For sure. I think what I, what I love about this chapter too is that it's really about, um, again, it goes back to our ways of knowing as teachers are uh, more important in some ways than the students' behaviors or misbehaviors themselves, right? Because everything that students do say their silences are interpreted by us as educators in some way, right? And so when it comes to knowing students, right? I talk about this with my own students. It's not just about like knowing what they love to do, right? So when we talk about students' assets, it's not just things like they love to ride horses or they're really into NASCAR or those sorts of things, but it really moves sort of beyond that into who are they in this very moment? What are their hopes? What are their dreams? How are they defining themselves, right? And what are they trying to communicate with us every day? And, and how might our own identities and experiences misinterpret what they're trying to say? Ooh, yes. So that rings really true for me. Um, and so as I was reading this chapter, First off, it's really easy. It's written, by the way, I want to say, um, you've been really great about giving credit to our authors, and I want to be like you, Kathleen. It's written by Amy Murphy and Brianna Kennedy. And um, as I was reading this chapter, it was really easy to feel remorse about my own lack in the past with students. It was really easy for me to, me to see myself represented in unflattering ways and um, in ways that I was like, oh, either I've grown since then, like I could see places like from my early teaching, but also places where I was like, oh, oh, I see that and new with new eyes. Um, and so that's hard. That's hard work. I just want to own that, that that is not easy. Um, and it's lifelong. It's one of those things that is also lifelong, right? We are never going to get it right the first time at any point, right? But yeah. to me, what makes us equitable, part of what makes us equitable educators is we can recognize, right? When we make a mistake, we can admit 
what that mistake is and we can work with the person or people the mistake was made with to learn how to move forward, right? You and I both um, do work with the school reform initiative and I love their language of better action. We can take better action because it it assumes like you're not gonna get to best because the work's never done, but you can continually strive for better action. Um, And for me in particular, what this chapter brings up is uh, knowing students well is super important, developing those relationships and it intersects with my biases and assumptions. And so in order to truly know our students well, in order for me to truly know my learners well, I have to really do some work on um, noticing some some of my own positionality that gets in the way of seeing them fully. And so there's a lot of feelings that rise up. And I guess I, I'm, I'm curious about a couple of things is how do we strive to do that and be gentle on ourselves? Like the both and of like being, um, being really rigorous in, in interrogating our biases and assumptions and knowing that they're human. Yeah. I find myself more and more closing my eyes sometimes as an educator and asking myself, when I think of a good student, what do I think of? And to me, it's this like regular, simple exercise to help me interrogate, like, what am I seeing? Like what pops up in my brain? How is that, how has that changed over time? What parts of that are not changing and why might that be, right? And then I think about based on who pops, like what images pop up, what, what policies and practices do, am I implementing in my own teaching spaces that are reinforcing those notions for me, right? And so some concrete examples of that are, you know, I've changed attendance policies in recent years. I've changed, um, assignment completion and revision policies. I've changed all kinds of things as I've stopped to say, what is it that I was brought up to believe like a good characteristics a good student has, right? Then, and for me, that was things like they prioritize schoolwork over other things, right? That's the first priority. And I've come to realize how much privilege is in that statement right? How many people in our country do not have the luxury of prioritizing completing their homework over taking care of family members, over making sure that there's food, right, in in their house, over like all of those things. Um, So that's been an important practice for me that chapters such as this one um, remind me regularly, right? Like what are those things that I grew up with, those assumptions that I then um, make, uh, make um, prominent in my classroom that then um, alienate students? Yeah, I think this, this chapter is a lot about behavior too. And, uh, you know, I remember being a new teacher who had um, a really difficult time with figuring out what my 
boundaries were and what the clarity, figuring out a lot of the, there's a teacher in here that they um, sort of follow, Emily, and um, she has a lot of the similar issues I had about trying to figure out how to be a young teacher who um, wants her kids to like her and wants an orderly classroom. And that word orderly is, is culturally defined, right? And so um, I think a lot of my learning towards the end of my time in school libraries was about, is this just bothering me? Or is this disrupting learning? Because if it's just bothering me, I can change that. I mean, I can change myself, right? And so if it's disrupting learning, that might be a different thing. But if it's just my issue, I'm paid to be here. I can, I can let that go. I think it, that parallels with the notion. And I think it's highlighted a lot actually in the second chapter of this text, which is our job isn't to fix kids. Yes. Say it again for the people in the back, Kathleen. Right? Like we, we can't, we need to work on ourselves regularly. Right. And there's things within ourselves that we need to fix, but fixing kids is not part of the job of teachers. And if we prioritize a culture of compliance, inevitably we are going to be fixed. We are going to try to fix kids so that they fit into whatever it is we're viewing as being compliant. We see you, PBIS. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, I um, have been thinking a lot about um, this analogy of figure and ground and um, that I got from this book my son was reading actually called Team Human and this idea that when you look at an optical illusion like the vase with the two faces, you can either see the vase, the figure or the ground which becomes the two faces. And I think of our students as the figures, right? But our job as educators is to notice the ground. I mean, obviously to notice the students, but to, to cultivate the ground so students can become their best versions of themselves, so they can reach their potential, so that they can learn. But our job isn't to, to focus on fixing them. It's on like, how are we watering the soil and fertilizing it and providing sunlight and you know the, the things that they need to grow? Yeah, it goes back again to that notion of um, how are we letting them define themselves? Yeah. Right. Are we defining them or are they able to define themselves? And then we, right, create, as you said, we nurture an environment in which who they see themselves can can grow and develop. And, and I think that's tricky because um, Murphy and Kennedy draw on all this research of warm demanders. Um, and maybe we can explain what they call warm demanders or teachers who have high expectations for all of their students and communicate them warmly, but it's not about compliance. It's about high expectations for the learning, not the like behaving in a specific narrow way. And I think that's a tricky thing for that requires us to get under our assumptions about what being a student should look like, what classrooms should look like. And so how do you help pre-service or even in-service teachers see the difference between having high expectations around compliance and high expectations around learning? Yeah, it's something we unpack early and often in the teacher education program that I teach in. 
I think it's one of those ideas that, um, you know, like, like all things around equity, it has to be the, the lens by which they approach every part of teaching, right? I think sometimes when we talk about this warm demander and compliance, we only think about the um, leading the classroom part of it but we don't think about how our, the way we actually teach and the what that we teach and how we transition students in between teaching moments. I think we don't always think about those pieces when it comes to, um, when it comes to that notion of compliance. And so to me, if you think about high expectations being about the learning, Right, and therefore the warm demanding encompasses every single part of our teaching and not just the way we react to student behaviors in the moment, then I, my, I, my hope is that with the pre-service teachers that I work with, that that just sort of becomes again, part of who they are as educators, right? That, yeah. It occurs to me that um, a proficiency-based system done well should allow that um, that focus on um, high expectations to be more reasonable and manageable for everyone because it builds on it's an asset-based approach that says what can the student do and what's their next step for learning yeah and that to me goes back to this idea of um, you know like anything right proficiency based education has the potential. And I appreciate that you said, if done right, right? Because that can only happen. And this is sort of what I was trying to explain probably too vaguely uh, a minute ago. But this idea of if your proficiencies themselves are not based in equitable thinking and ways of knowing and being, then it doesn't matter if you have a proficiency-based system or not, right? And so that's where this compliance impacts everything, right? Because if your proficiencies are asking students to be compliance in what they know and how they know it, and that runs counter to their own cultural uh, ways of knowing and being, then of course their behavior is then going to respond in ways that you find non-compliant as a teacher. So it really has to encompass every single part of the educational system. So I think that leads to this quote from Alfie Cohn that's in this chapter that I just think sh I, I should write everywhere. I think this should go everywhere, right? And it's when students are off task, our first response should be to ask, what's the task? I think this gets at what we were just talking about, about um, not fixing students, but fixing pedagogy and curriculum so that it's engaging and relevant and meaningful because perhaps the off task is sending the message that, um, that these things are not relevant to their lives. So the lived experiences of students. Yeah, and even beyond sort of not engaging and not meaningful, 
but sometimes what we are what we actually create is damaging yes to our students it actually demeans who they are and their culture and it um separates them right from their um their ways of knowing and being and of course i would want students to act in a way that was uncompliant right because i would want them to advocate for themselves and um yeah send that message Ooh, i am a, a student right now and um i can really feel the difference in spaces that are hospitable to me as a learner and spaces that are not and that um, kind of a hospitality um when I think about what that means, it's instructors who um, are, are strengths-based, right? Who notice that we bring learning to the table. And it's about um, honoring our full humanity. And it's about, um, you know, the professors I have that really make me feel, that make, that, that create an environment where I really wanna learn and dig in are co-learners. So they're not like, I know everything and I'm going to instruct you. They're like, how can we learn together? And for me, that's, that's the kind of environment where I thrive as opposed to when I'm in a class where the professor is wielding more power and I don't feel like I can learn. And I, I think that there's a lot that echoes what's happening and what, what's being talked about in this chapter about creating hospitable spaces for young people. For sure. Yeah. And, and as you know, you just described, I, the word agency keeps coming up to me. Yes. Right? Like the, the environments that you've described, you have a sense of agency in them, right? You, and that agency allows you to communicate your needs. I think. And, and what I think about in this, you know, the spaces, when I think of Emily, the teacher in this chapter, right? The first space when she, that she creates is devoid of agency. And in the second chapter or the second um, iteration of what, how she could have started her school year, you see that agency. I love that because they, they, they describe Emily's um, experience and then they reimagine it as counter story. And I'm just going to read that because I think it's really powerful. Uh, this is from page 330. Emily readied herself for the school year by learning as much as she could about the eighth grade science curriculum and exploring the school's surrounding communities, which were largely Dominican and African American. Although she had not yet met her students, she gathered preliminary information about their communities by walking through their neighborhoods, shopping in their stores, and attending cultural events. These experiences provided examples she used in her first unit of the year, which focused on the processes of scientific inquiry. Emily devoted the first days of school to developing a classroom community and establishing behavior expectations. She stated the rules, explained their rationale, and gave examples and non-examples, as well as modeled the routines that would make the class run smoothly. Because the school expected her to teach content right away, she paired the standards with community building activities. For example, students brought in cultural artifacts from their homes and then made observations and inferences about each other's objects, as well as each other's lives. 
As the school year went on, she learned more about students by attending their games and events at the Dominican Community Center and used this knowledge to, to design projects and activities that reflected their lives. When she encountered classroom management dilemmas, she thought critically about what may be at the root of the issue by considering her student-teacher interactions, what instructional tasks she had assigned when the conflict arose, and whether her expectations were inequitable or unclear. No first year is without challenges, but Emily loved her students and was thrilled to be teaching them. It's such I, a, oh, go ahead. I, I want a do-over for my first year. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> and you know, we get them. We get a do-over every year as teachers and, and, and um, as educators. And so, um, so we can we can strive for better action. Yeah, we get a do-over every day. Every day, thank right? you. Right, every yeah. day is a do-over. We get to sort of, you know, reflect on what worked, what didn't, and have really. And I think I don't know that I would have said that honestly prior to this pandemic, but to me, that's one of my biggest takeaways around teaching over this past year is every day I get to start over and I get to say to my students, yesterday felt like it didn't work for me. Did it work for you? And if so, what did, what didn't, right? This co-constructing, to me that's has evolved in a really powerful way over this past year for me, right? And I think middle grades, we can do that with our middle grade students too. Right? How do we co-construct? How do we honestly say to them, yesterday didn't feel good? This is all about power. It's about really being aware of power in all the ways it plays out. There are so many exemplary articles in this book, and I'm glad we didn't try to talk about four of them because we've, we've, we've been talking for a long time and it's been so wonderful. But are there any other specific uh, um, chapters you want to point readers to or just generally highlight? I think the, you know, the, the best way I'll frame it is recognizing that there are so many ways that we um, are essentializing of young adolescents impacts students. And sort of each of these chapters look at different ways that we do that. So there's an excellent chapter by Matt Moulton on um, youth experiencing homelessness, right? And reframing what we think of when we think of homelessness and how the way we think about homelessness actually impacts the way we are with students and families experiencing homelessness, right? There's um, a powerful chapter around um, the fact that our schools are English centric, right? And what's really interesting for me with that one is although that specific chapter is in a linguistically diverse community, right? And it frames the fact that how that English centric centricity, centricity, I don't know. I feel like I'm making up words here how being English centric in that classroom um, impacts negatively, right? Students um, and ways for liberating students who are linguistically diverse. I think about the ways that 
our, we do that in our Vermont schools all the time by prioritizing certain forms of English, right? We constantly make our students and their families feel less than for the different ways that they speak. And so I think even as Vermonters, that chapter has a lot of important messages for us. Yes, I, I have a, a dear friend who works um, with students uh, refugee students and she talks about talking to one of her students who felt dumb and then she just posed some questions like this is a high school student and she said well what would it be like if those students you call smart were in school with you in your native country and she was like oh I would be the smart one then and it isn't it a shame that schools are set up so that this kid feels dumb just because of her language of origin absolutely absolutely yeah, so I just, you know, I want to honor um, all of the amazing authors and their work and the way that they're contributing to the field through this, through this book. Well, we've just scratched the surface. So readers, get yourself a copy of Equity and Cultural Responsiveness in the middle grades and, uh, and um, follow your heart through it because there's so many places to dig in, so many entry points. Kathleen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again and for talking about um, this book. Um, and thanks for, for, uh, for being in, in a co-creation space with Lisa Harrison and Ellis Hurd and bringing it to us. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to um, share it, right, with folks because um, yeah, it, it, was, it was certainly a labor of love and uh, work that Ellis, Lisa, and I continue in our work with uh, Middle School Journal. Our hope is that the ideas in this book are now continuously showing up in, in, in what we publish there. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you, Jeannie. <laughs> I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you so much to Kathleen Brinegar for appearing on the show and talking with me about equity and cultural responsiveness in the middle grades. If you're looking for a copy of Equity and Cultural Responsiveness in the Middle Grades, check your local library. Special thanks to our fabulous audio engineer, Audrey Holman. Find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more. You can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.